Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. everybody. Hi, Hi Dr. Dr. Nick. <laughs> yes, hello everybody. It's Dr. Nick here again. Welcome to Radiotherapy, live online and on podcast. Um, if you detect a little extra chirp in my voice this morning, it's because I am absolutely thrilled to have here in the studio, in real life, the actual human forms, not just of panel beta, but also Rainbow Doc. Rainbow, welcome back to the studio. It must be 12 months since we saw each other face to face. It is. It's over 12 months and it feels like can, I'm smiling. I'm, I can't believe how happy I am to be here and how happy I am to see Triple R Studios really clean because I've never seen Triple R Studios really clean before. Surfaces have been wiped, sanitised and on such a regular basis. It's sparkling, isn't it? So sparkling outside, it's sparkling inside. Uh, welcome to Radiotherapy. Wonderful to have you back, Rainbow. Let's crack on because we've got a repacked show coming up. Um, first up, we'll be talking by phone with New South Wales psychiatrist Joe Dunn. Joe started the group called Sykes on Bikes, which is an awareness-raising charitable foundation addressing mental health in more rural and remote communities. So we'll be talking to him about, is this really just a good excuse for a motorcycle-crazy mental health practitioner to go herring around the Australian countryside? We'll find out from Joe shortly. Uh, Rainbow will be taking us through the life and teachings of recently departed psychologist Melissa Hart. Now, Melissa was a trailblazer in the field of emotion-focused therapy and a mentor, I believe, for Rainbow. A very sad loss for the profession, but with an amazing legacy. We'll be hearing all about that. And, and for those of you who are listening who occasionally wonder if your grey matter is beginning to let you down, haven't we all? Uh, Prudence Dear will be later on talking about memory, ageing and what we can do to stop the rot. But before all that, first we have some news. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. So in the news today, uh, Rainbow, you wanted to talk a bit about telehealth and what's happening. Yeah, well, this week was going to be the week that telehealth ceased under Medicare for um, psychological services. Um, two weeks ago, we were told, no, it's going to be extended to the end of June, which is... Um, Great news for some people, not so good news for other people. If you want face-to-face -face service, uh, uh, it's kind of annoying if your psychologist isn't doing it. Uh, but presumably just because you can do telehealth doesn't mean the psychologists and therapists have to do it. No, they don't have to do it. I mean, what we've seen is uh, enormous access to, to psychological sessions for people because of, because of COVID. Um, we know there is evidence that shows that it's really effective. Um, so and when I you say is effective, you mean telehealth psychology is effective? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the government is just trying to decide how much money they want to spend on mental health through, through Medicare in this way because, you know, we have two weeks' notice for people to, you know, rearrange how they work. <laughs> Um, and this has happened several times. And I understand it's really hard to to to, to work this all out, but um, for a lot of people, a lot of um, 
people accessing service through telehealth, I think they're really relieved that it's till June because it's opened up access for people. You know, they don't have to travel. It doesn't take so long to get to get support because they don't have to travel. And for some people, traveling is really, really hard to, to access health. So to be able to do it from home has been a, a great, great benefit. Yes, I think we know that there's some people, particularly with the anxiety disorders, for whom exactly, as you say, getting out and about traveling is a complicated thing. Being able to get help from home has actually been a bonus for them. It's actually been more effective uh, than if they had to go out face-to-face. Well, there's two sides to that. One is that, you know, um, a client or patient will arrive uh, in, a, in a state of anxiety that then uh, needs to be worked with before you can really do anything else. So, so um, there's a plus and minus of that. You're actually teaching how to manage that. Um, the the one disadvantage is that people are you know there's a lot of people that have found themselves you know in a an agoraphobic state from not having gone gone out through covid and um and now are finding it very difficult to go out um and you know there's an argument that not having to get to their sessions face to face is just exacerbating the agoraphobia. Yes, so that, that issue, if you don't challenge the anxiety-inducing behaviour, then it becomes more entrenched. I want to ask you a, a question about the, the telehealth, because there was, a, oh, not just about telehealth, about psychological services, because last year some extra services were funded under Medicare for psychological help. Uh, this year, 2021, how many Medicare-funded services can people get? Are there any extra services again under COVID, or is it just the 10 that were previously available. Oh, I'm a bit nervous of getting this wrong. Oh, There's so much sorry. confusion. <laughs> if you ring up Medicare and ask them, depending on who you speak to, you get a different answer, right? It's really confusing. 20 this year, but you have to use your six sessions and your four sessions, which is always, which is the usual, has been for years. Um, six sessions and then a further four sessions if required and referred by GP. Once those are used, if people are still needing support, there's an an extra 10 until the end of this year, I believe. (laughs) Okay, well, we'll take that one on notice. Um, There's another little item in the news I just want to bring up because um, this is a COVID-related item, but this came from a a mathematician, and I completely love this. Um, This character decided to work out uh, how much COVID virus there is in the world, and he worked out that there are two quintillion COVID particles in human beings at any one time. That's two billion billion. That's 18 noughts after the two. Then he worked out how big they were, and he worked out that all the circulating coronavirus, this is the SARS-CoV-2 virus that causes the pandemic, all of it that's circulating at any one time could fit into half a Coke can. Now, I just think that is the most fabulous thing. Uh, He makes the point that it's quite an astonishing thought that this pandemic that has changed the entire world, all of the culprits are contained in two mouthfuls from a Coke can. (laughs) I've rendered you speechless, Rainbow. Not often that happens. I am speechless. Isn't that a fabulous piece of information? So there you are. You get some science on radiotherapy. Um, we'll be coming back to you shortly, um, talking to Dr. Joe Dunn from Sykes on Bikes. Uh, I'm really looking forward to find out what, what these crazy mental health professionals are doing, getting on motorbikes and roaring around the countryside. He'll be with us after, straight after these messages. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. 
Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. On the phone, we have Joe Dunn from Sykes on Bikes. Hi, Joe. Hi, Nick, and thank you very much for having me on your show. Just tell me, whereabouts are you, Joe? I'm sitting in my home in Sydney. Right, and you are a psychiatrist? I am, yeah. Yes, and so tell us about Sykes on Bikes. Where did this all begin? Okay, all right. Um, Well, it started around 2010 when I got the idea into my head that I wanted to ride a motorbike across the Nullarbor. And uh, I was joined by a couple of mates, and one of my sons joined us uh, as well. And and my mates were a psychiatrist and a psychologist. And my witty friend called us Sykes on Bikes. So, So off we went, we rode the Nullarbor. And we thought that that was sort of man versus nature. That was very bold of us. And as it turned out, it was actually a hell of a lot of fun, and, and it was a lot easier than what we thought. So in a pub in Kalgoorlie one evening, I said, why don't we come back next year and we'll see if any mental health professionals want to ride with us, and we'll ride for a charity, and, and we'll ride from Perth to Sydney. So, so the original of, thing was to do it just for fun, and then it was so exactly. much fun you thought we have to find an excuse to do this again. Exactly, exactly. It sort of uh, turned into a national mental health charity, and the strange thing was that um, when it started, all I wanted to do was go for a motorbike ride. You know, I just I didn't actually set out to to, uh, to start a national mental health charity, but that's sort of how it evolved. So, what's the charity, um, the aims and purposes of the charity? Well, um, our focus is on rural and remote mental health. And, you know, when, I, when the organisation came together, I was saying to the riders, you know, do you want this to be a social club or should we turn it into a charity? There was a reasonable consensus. People wanted to do something for the community. And then the logical thing, of course, because we were riding these motorbikes uh, through Outback Australia, was to look at rural and remote mental health. And that's what we've been doing for the last 10 years. And how, how do you look at it? I mean, you can turn up on the motorbike, but how on earth yeah. does that help anyone look at rural remote <laughs> mental health? Yeah, that's a very good question. And in fact, it's, a, it's, it's the, the process that we've developed, sort of just, just like Sites on Bikes, just developed, um, you know, uh, necessity is the mother of invention. We were trying to work out how we do this. And we ended up with, four, with a, there were four activities that we get involved in. Um, the first is just the very basic sort of awareness raising where we're happy to talk to anyone about issues of rural or remote mental health. The second is that we try to do presentations to the community, um, you know, so that when we go into the community, we try to find people who might be interested in whatever is our message. And message always, of course, relates to rural and remote mental health. After, over a period of years, though, what we thought is that we should really interact directly with the community. So we, we, so we've sort of offered free health checks. Both It's a physical and, and mental health check, working on the principle that the four silent killers of people in the bush are diabetes, hypertension, alcoholism, and depression. So what we try to do is we look at all of those four things. We also worked out that there's no point holding meetings and asking people to come to us because then we just end up preaching to the converted. So we've got, we go out to... Um, we go out to schools and RSLs, we go to men's sheds. Um, in Tasmania, one time we even went into an abattoir at lunchtime and all these guys came out with, with aprons covered in blood and had their health checked. It was just, you know, it was just wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we actually get... And then the last thing that we do is because we've got... 
psychiatrists, psychologists, mental health nurses are all riding with us. We sort of look after each other. And what we do on each of the rides is we have our own little conference where we present to our colleagues what we're doing in our work. So we sort of invented these sort of four activities, and, and it's always being reinvented as we go along. Fantastic. Rainbow. Hi, Joe. It's Rainbow Doc here. I'm just, I'm just wondering whether you've got a representation amongst your crew from Dykes on Bikes and whether there's a whether there's a particular since you've kind of um, I'm not going to say you've stolen their name but you've you've you've, you've kind of, <laughs> you've kind of uh, borrowed borrowed something yeah. from them and whether there's you know you have someone from Dykes on Bikes with you and a, a little uh, a little project which is aimed particularly at the health of um, of queer women in the well, bush that's, okay that's a very interesting angle uh, we would love to have interactions with Dykes on Bikes. We'd love to have connections with, you know, all, any sort of motorcycle groups and mental health groups out there. Um, when you get out into the bush, though, what you find is that, in, in fact, um, once a year there's a, a rural and remote mental health symposium that's run by Australian New Zealand Mental Health Association. What you find is that there are all sorts of extraordinary organisations out in the bush, each of which has got an interest in one little area, you know, so it might be um, fetal alcohol syndrome or it might be um, suicide, or suicide prevention. Um, and it might be, one, you know, one of these areas that you're talking about. Obviously, I mean, look, first of all, we'd love to have an association with Dykes on Bikes. We think they're fabulous. And, and, and if, if only to apologise to them for stealing their name, as you say. <laughs> well, you didn't <laughs> steal it. You just, you just adopted it. Maybe. So, so yeah. Joe, Joe, I think we should join up with the radio presenters, the Mikes on Bikes. And, um, oh. We could keep this going for a long time. Uh, yeah. <laughs> on a, on a, but a more serious question. One of the things that always concerns me about this um, this kind of endeavour is um, people go into a community or a new area, um, raise a kind of expectation or um, start something, but then you get on your bikes and you leave. Um, yeah. How does how do we manage some sort of long term engagement or assistance? Because it feels yeah. noble though the intention is. I always worry about what it means to. Sort of bowl in, then bowl out again. Exactly, and that, that, that's a consideration that we've spoken about with the committee quite regularly. It's a process called kicking over stones. You know, it's kind of you, if you kick over a stone, you've got to be prepared to you know mm. work out what you're going to do with what you fight exactly. under it. You know, so that yes, so there is this um, there is this concern that we can go in and we can pick off a scab and then sort of walk away. Um, now, look, I think the reality is that. By, by its very nature, by the mission of what we do and how it's evolved, is that we do just bowl up and say hello and interact with people quite intensively and we get on our bikes the next morning and off we go. Um, what we do, though, with the health checks is that if we, if we know that someone is, um, is, is struggling, then on all the rides there is just a hierarchy of mental health professionals. Um, and, and this happens from time to time. And really all that we can do is get that person to sit down with a psychiatrist. Uh, and, and, and I've done this myself. Where you, All you can do is to ask the, 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 the attendee permission to, to let their GP know. You know, you talk to, the, to whoever's there. You give them some feedback about what you think. And you identify the problem and come up with some suggestions about what might happen next. But then the reality is that all that I can do as a psychiatrist is make sure that the, with, with, the, with the person's permission that the following day I can get onto the GP and go, look, you've got a patient who's really struggling and this is what I think. 
and that's you know so that on the so that it's not just kicking over stones, although that happens. But what we've got to do is feed people into those sort of the local support services. And you also mentioned that um, it's about physical health checks. You mentioned about sort of blood pressure and diabetes and that sort of thing. Are you taking with you general practitioners? Uh, uh, well, no, no, but uh, on this ride coming up, the minute's ride in May, they're going to have four psychiatrists. We don't take along GPs because essentially we're, what, what we're really functioning as is a screening service. So, and it happens from time to time that you do find someone whose blood pressure is too high, blood sugar is too high. Once again, um, all you can do is to explain to them what that means and, 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 and what, the, what, it requires, what sort of treatment is required and the consequences of not having treatment, you know, and then ask the GP to take, to take it over. So tell us about the ride that's coming up. Well, um, what we've tended to do once or twice a year is to do this thing that we've just come to call the big ride. And the big ride has usually been a nine-day wonder. Uh, so it's two weekends and a week in the middle. And, and we'll do big rides where we'll go out with a group of 10 to 20 sucks on bikes, 10 to 20 mental health professionals out to uh, smaller towns. We've done, for example, we've done Perth to Sydney three times. Whoa. We've been around Tasmania at least twice. Um, the last big ride we had was from Adelaide to Darwin up the middle. Uh, we've done big loops of Victoria and New South Wales and Queensland, um, you know, so that, that we actually, you know, go these long distances. Now, what, what happened with this year's big ride is uh, uh, I thought that we might see whether we could go to visits to the cattle stations of uh, Queensland and the Northern Territory. Um, I'd always put that aside because I just had this image that, you know, they'd be down 100 kilometres of dirt road and no-one's going to get their Harley-Davidson down there, you know. As it turns out, as it turns out, there are actually you know, a few kilometres of reasonably well-graded sort of dirt road so that we can get these bikes down. So we've been invited uh, by eight cattle stations in Queensland and the Northern Territory. Um, and so there's a, there are groups leaving uh, Melbourne, Sydney and Brisbane. We're all going to converge. From between Mount Arthur and Darwin, we're visiting these cattle stations. We'll we'll sit down and interact with, with something between two two hundred and three hundred staff of the stations in that week. We'll do the health checks. We'll do the presentations. Then about half of the group decided they're going to turn around and go home after that, and the other half of us have decided, well, we're just going to keep on going. <laughs> so we're going. <laughs> so we're going down the west coast, down to Perth, and then this will then back. This will actually be my fifth motorbike ride across the Nullarbor, wow. which is where it started. <laughs> I'm I'm thinking, Joe, how fabulously good this is for the mental health of you and everyone that's riding with you, you know, which is important too, rather than uh, sitting uh, in a in a consulting room, twenty four seven, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, of course, there's that standard joke that you hear that you never see a motorcycle parked outside a psychiatrist's office. You know, well, 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 it happens at my place, but it's my motorbike. I was going to say, unless it's owned you know. by the psychiatric. <laughs> but yes, I've, I've had a look at your website, and and you do espouse all sorts of mental health benefits of sitting on a motorcycle, despite the physical risks. Tell us why you think riding a motorbike is so good for mental health. Um, look, I think at all sorts of level. I mean, at some sort of sort of primitive level, there is this. Uh, there is this aspect of us that likes the thrill of it. Uh, motorcyclists like a little, sort of live on the edge a little bit and have a little bit of danger. Um, uh, you know, as you get older, you sort of slow down a bit. Um, there's also something that's meditative or mindful about riding a motorbike. You have a lot of time to think inside that helmet, you know, so you've got to find the right things to think about. 
Um, quite apart from that, there's always an extraordinary camaraderie. We start these these rides awkwardly, clumsily, but we're all joined by our mutual interests of motorcycles and mental health. And so by the end of the rides, there's always this great sense of teamwork and cooperation. It always feels like you've had a fantastic adventure. And I imagine it's a very good icebreaker, particularly perhaps in rural or remote communities, when you turn up blokes connect with motorcycles there's something very easy about them coming along and having a chat so it must be a very good segue into uh talking about more important more personal things because they'll come along and yeah. have a look at the bike no matter what yes oh yeah definitely it's a great icebreaker it's what i call going from leather couches to leather jackets <laughs> so are you, are you wanting are you wanting more sykes on bikes oh well definitely um uh, if um if there are any mental health professionals out there, psychiatrists, psychologists, mental health nurses, who ride a motorbike and uh, would like to come along and meet Sykes on Bikes, um, uh, please contact us through the website, the Sykes on Bikes website. Uh, and we also have social rides to sort of invite people in. We'll just go away for a, an afternoon or a day or, or a pub meal overnight and we'll go for a ride and, and we can sort of, you know, engage with people then. Um, I, I, the organisation is sort of slowly growing. We've come out of the pandemic. Um, there's a lot of interest now, e- even to the point that with this ride coming up, it looks like we're going to be able to uh, have the pleasure of bringing along a documentary team and get a little bit of television uh, coverage as well at the same time. So, um, you know, the organisation is growing. It, it's, it's serving a purpose, but... You know, I, I, I like to confess that it makes us sound very do-goody, but we actually have a fabulous time as well. Well, that should be the perfect combination, shouldn't it? Do something worthwhile for someone else while doing it for yourself as well. Uh, you, you are an interesting character, Joe, because uh, you've actually published a couple of books, haven't you? Uh, yes, yes. Look, it's just a phase of life you go through. Uh, <laughs> no, I said... <laughs> yeah, but, um, one of your books has been translated into seven languages. That's not a phase of life most of us go through. I I'm thinking, when does this phase of life happen? <laughs> but tell us about the books. What, what have you written about? Uh, well, look, I, I, I sort of just... Uh, it's what I call smart-ass self-help. So it's, it, it's me, and I just... I write it very quickly in conversational <laughs> style, and, you know, and and um, and, I, and I wrote a book, and, and, it, and it was published, and it seemed to do okay. And an Irish, uh, an Irish publisher picked it up, and, and so Harper Collins then picked it up, and the next one was called Painful People, and that sold forty thousand copies in seven languages. <laughs> they took that to the Frankfurt Book Fair, and then I wrote another little book that wasn't so successful. It was part of a series, The Lazy Person's Guides, and my one was The Lazy Person's Guide to Midlife, as you could imagine. Suited me at the time. So, um, so but, Joe, I just have to ask you: somewhere between riding around Australia on a recurrent basis and writing lots of mm-hmm. books, do you actually do any psychiatry? <laughs> Look, I have been. I run a, uh, a busy private practice. I do a bit of medical legal work, and I've been the medical superintendent of one of the Ramsey Healthcare private psychiatric hospitals for 25 years now. So, you know, so I have a very varied and interesting life, and I'm very lucky. Well, it does sound as though you do a bit of psychiatry. So that's the answer to that yeah. question. Joe, it's been absolutely wonderful to talk to you. Just finally, is there a website uh, that you can give to people? They may want to uh, open their wallets and their credit cards. They might want to join oh. up. They might want to subscribe. They might want to support your documentary through a GoFundMe page yes. or something or like that. Or buy a book. Yes. Or, or buy all your, all your books. Where, where can people go for more information if they're desperate to support your cause? Look, certainly, um, certainly um, the Sykes on Bikes website 
uh, is just cyclonbikes.com.au. And uh, there is a sort of a, 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 there's a, a link there, I think, for the Give Now um, uh, website, which is fundraising. There's all, our filmmakers are also hoping to, um, to generate money um, in order to, um, you know, in order to support the making of the documentary. And they've set up a, a crowdfunding page. And I think the link for that is on, the, is on our website. Fantastic. Well, Joe, all power to you. I'm so impressed by this. I think it's a wonderful combination of people having fun doing something they absolutely love and doing some good for the rural and remote communities. What a wonderful combination. Thank you very, very much for your time and best of luck with the next ride. Thank you very much, Nick. Uh, thanks for having me on your show. That was Joe Dunn from Sykes on Bikes. What a fabulous story. Do yeah, really bringing, bringing um, psychiatric care to the people just and, through the books, the simplifying nature, you know, as he's describing yeah, the books. Yeah, yeah and do jump onto their website because it's uh, full of good stuff. And uh, what is it about the motorbikes and people with huge beards and stuff like that? But there we are. They're a fabulous-looking bunch of people. Um, We'll be coming back after the break and um, we'll be talking to Rainbow uh, in a little more detail about emotion-focused therapy and its instigator, Dr. Melissa Hart. And that'll be coming up right after this. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Rainbow Doc, um, we're talking seriously now. We're talking about someone who was uh, a, a bit of a mentor to you, I think, and someone who um, was important in the world of psychology. Yeah, Dr. Melissa Hart, um, who is a counselling and clinical psychologist, emotion-focused practitioner, trainer, mentor, therapist, supervisor, um, well-known in the world of counselling psychology and person-centred psychology around the world. Um, and she died at the age of 61 at the beginning of last month, month beginning of February. Um, and I, I just thought it was important to acknowledge her here and pay tribute to her here because there are many um, psychologists doing great work in therapy rooms with people. There are not so many psychologists that are out there um, teaching, promoting, uh, advocating in the way that um, Melissa did. She was a bundle of energy um, and um, never stopped. For instance, she uh, she was involved, she was on the na National Executive of the Counselling College of the APS, Australian Psychological Society, for some years. And she was there during, you know, difficult times when Medicare uh, came in as a service and the two-tier system was created so that clinical psychologists were kind of elevated and counselling psychologists were, if you want, demoted. Um, I mean, I'm saying that really it was indicated from the financial perspective because of the the uh, the amount of the rebate that was given to the two, two groups of psychologists, clinicals getting 
substantially more than counselling psychologists. So that was a particularly difficult time for counselling psychologists. And because of that, um, many of the counselling psychology uh, courses shut. I don't think you can study counselling psychology in Melbourne anymore. Um, So, But Melissa was still in there with the um, counselling college. She chaired the Victorian branch for some years um, until her health got in the way and she she had to step back. Um, She also decided, you know, as a counselling psychologist, that the best way that she could advocate for counselling psychology was to um, become a clinical psychologist as well. So, you know, in her 50s, she went back and did another master's so that she could she could do that. This is at the same time as establishing the um, Institute of Emotion Focused Therapy as a, a place for teaching of emotion-focused therapy in Melbourne. I can see you want to, me to pause, well, pause um, there for a moment. Well, we've, we've produced quite a few terms here, counselling, psychology, clinical psychology, emotion-focused therapy, which, of course, you're all over, you understand this, but it may be helpful for our listeners to clarify a bit what we mean. I mean, talking about counselling psychology, to some people might sound a bit like a tautology because isn't all psychology around counselling. So do you want to just explain a bit for our listeners what the difference between a counselling psychologist and a clinical psychologist and then we'll go on and talk about emotion focused therapy. Well the difference starts off in the training so so maybe just in depending on where you train a couple of units difference in, in the initial training. Um, clinical psychologists are trained to diagnose and treat. Counselling psychologists are trained to work with if you want the experience of the the client and ask the question, you know, what has happened to the client rather than what is wrong with the client. So counselling psychologists traditionally will be working with grief, with trauma, with drug and alcohol, which are seen as different from working with a a mental health diagnosis. And I can see you looking, you know, what is the difference? Because the reality is that clinical psychologists, counselling psychologists, general psychologists um, uh, that haven't done... uh, haven't gone through a master's training or aren't endorsed, I should say. They're not endorsed through APRA as clinical or counselling or health psychology or educational psychologist, so general psychologist. It's all very confusing, isn't it? Because essentially clients want a psychologist that they can relate to. We know that the relationship is the most important piece. Um, So the general public often doesn't know about these distinctions. But certainly within the profession they're very that they're, they're important distinctions so go on now and talk to us about emotion focused therapy therapy which was particularly melissa's area of expertise wasn't it yeah well emotion focused therapy was is an approach that was um has been around for about 30 odd years i think les greenberg les professor les, leslie greenberg who's based in toronto the team of people him and others Um, devised emotion-focused therapy as a way of working with people um, from a perspective of putting emotions centre stage, um, seeing emotions as the drivers of people's behaviour and also the the source of people's difficulties. So rather than uh, just naming emotions, emotion-focused therapies work with live active emotions not just kind of regulating them but keeping them alive and working with them now melissa was trained her initial training was at la trobe university and um 
uh, back then, there was, it was a counselling psychology course that she did, and emotion-focused therapy was one of the units that she she um, studied during that time, taught by um, Judith Eyre, who now runs the Institute of Emotion-Focused Therapy in Sydney. Um, and Melissa just connected with this approach, just thought it was fabulous. And from that moment on, it, like she was on a mission to turn psychology into emotion-focused practice, if you want. You know, she took it everywhere. As a student, when I first met her, as a psychology student, she was talking about emotion-focused therapy all the time, so enthusiastically, which was m- what made me want to learn about it and study it. And I initially um, learned how to work with it from Melissa. And if you think of emotion-focused therapy, who is this for? If, if people listening to this, well, I've not even heard of emotion-focused therapy before, but who would it be suitable for? What kind of is your problem? Um, well, it's evidence-based for people with depression, people with anxiety. Melissa's particular thing was people with trauma, childhood trauma. Um, she wrote a book about using emotion-focused therapy specifically for processing trauma, um, childhood sexual abuse. Um, so particularly useful for um, people with those kinds of presentations or experiences. Um, Melissa's thing was very much about working with people in a window of tolerance, in other words, in a in a creating safety for a client. Um, clients that have experienced trauma um, need a very safe environment. And it's something that has been, you know, more recently we hear a lot about trauma-informed therapy, which is what this is. Melissa has been doing that for a long time in creating this safe environment for a client in order to be able to you know approach the distress that they're feeling and unable to process and if if the focus is so strongly on emotion and the emotional content how easy or possible has it been to do emotional focus therapy through telehealth it's worked really well has it okay yeah it's um Surprisingly, um, it's worked really well. I mean, there. If you're taking people to a to a, a, um, a deep, a profound emotional place, it's necessary to make sure there is the safety. But it's it's um, and that can be a little bit difficult because you can't see quite as well. But you can sort of get closer to the client through the screen. So. Um, so it's it's been really effective, and Melissa actually was you know didn't want to go online at all when she was practicing. She kind of went, oh, I can't do this, but in the end decided that no, oh, this is really good. I I can do this, you know. So she was out there very early on. She you know put together a webinar talking about how to work with EFT, emotion focused therapy online um and I, I think that was one of i think that was the last piece that she did it's um, a, i've heard this from so many therapists that prior to covid they said oh, i could never do telehealth I, it just wouldn't be possible to do it well without the client in the room with me and 12 months later so much surprised by how well it seems to have worked so i'm interested it also works yeah. with emotion focused therapy um just tell me if, if people want to find out more about this, if there is, is there a, a, a resource they can look up to find out about emotion-focused therapy or about Melissa herself? Well, there's the Australian Institute of Emotion-Focused Therapy, um, which is a quick Google. Mm-hmm. You can go there. Um, there are, you know, there's a there's a 
community. There's a strong, vibrant community of emotion-focused therapists in Melbourne. It's not that big. They're all people that have been inspired and trained by Melissa, and she's left this uh, legacy, this enthusiasm amongst those people for, for this work. So, you know... We're going to miss her a lot, but she's left a lot. Well, that's, it's wonderful that you had the chance to talk about her on this show, and thank you for bringing her work to our attention. Dr. Melissa Hart there, who died this year, was it? Yeah, February. Yeah. Um, much missed, and emotion-focused therapy for those who are interested. Go and have a look and find out more about it. Can I just yeah. say, you know, one of, the, one of the things she did a couple of years ago, Melissa advocated for the World Association of Person-Centred... Um, psychotherapists and I can never it's a, it's a very very long title but they have a conference uh every two years um for person-centered therapists which includes uh emotion-focused therapists Melissa in New York a few years ago advocated for that conference to take place in New Zealand do you know how hard it is to get a conference <laughs> in New Zealand it's not easy because the times are all wrong and it's a long way away and blah 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 it was supposed to happen last year. Oh. It's happening in June, so that's a little plug for PCE 2021. For the, all of those of you who need an excuse to go to New Zealand, as if you needed another one, go there for the conference. Or do it online. It's online. It's a hybrid. <laughs> it's a hybrid. Yeah, thanks, Rainbow. Um, fairly shortly, we'll be coming back with Prudence, dear, um, talking a little bit about our memories. And for those of you who are a little concerned about whether the grey matter is beginning to slip a little bit, Stay online, because stay listening, because you're going to find out more just after this. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Online, we have Prudence, dear. Hi, Prudence. Hi, Rainbow. Hi, PB. Hello, uh, I'm Prudence. feeling envious. I'm so envious of you all being there together. I miss Brunswick. I can't <laughs> wait to get back in the studio. We can't wait to have you. <laughs> uh, that, that, that's if you can remember the way here. Well, yeah, that's a worry, isn't it? Do you know, as well, I mean, it's been a year since we've been in the studio. And since then, I have got a little bit older. In fact, I had a milestone uh, birthday just recently. Oh, sorry, for a moment, I thought you said a mildly stoned birthday. Well, I, I was hoping it was going to be that. But, you know, as you get older, you just don't do that anymore. At least I don't. Um, but, yeah, milestone, you know. And I think... Yeah, there is this thing as we get older, we start to perhaps become aware that um, aspects of our, our mental functioning seems to go into a bit of decline. I mean, you know, the, the sort of forgetting somebody's name momentarily or just taking a bit longer to recall a specific piece of information. And I think, you know, we see it as well, don't we? We know in our parents or grandparents, it's, it's something that's sort of kind of taken to be possibly part of of you know later life experience and i think okay as so i'm getting a bit older i thought it'd be worth having a bit of a look at this and, and see what we can understand and what can we do about it if anything and i completely agree with you prove that um with my patients the uh, there's i think almost an epidemic of dementia anxiety so people who yeah. are along with their doctor someone like myself getting older and then exactly what you say they they have 
a bit of a struggle with a name or a place or something like that, and suddenly they think, oh, my God, is this path the slippery slope? Um, well, yes, is it? Well, that's a good question, actually. So, now there's, um, there's, I mean, there are people who are working on this, and there's a, there's a researcher called Dr. Denise Park at the University of Texas, and there it, she runs a laboratory called the Aging Mind Laboratory. Mm-hmm. And um, that sounds good, isn't it? And it's all part of something called the Center for Vital Longevity, so I think this is a very interesting pedigree there and actually quite, a, I think, a, a, you know, a very positive, optimistic view about ageing. And, and what she said is that, you know, there is a slow cognitive decline um, where, you know, these processes in our brain just take a bit longer. But actually she's saying that this starts in our 20s and there are measurable differences that can be identified by decades. So rather than thinking about this as something that happens towards, you know, the latter part of our lives and there will be this sudden decline, actually she's taken a much more holistic view and, and has been researching what she calls healthy ageing. Um, and I think, you know, as part really to understand how we can perhaps retain useful functioning for as long as possible. So, so let's, and, let's talk about that because I think one of the things yeah. that is so important about this um, is that there's a sense of fatalism to some extent that um, if, if my brain is going to slide into senescence, there's nothing I can do about it. But that's not oh, true, yeah. but that's not true it's, is it? It's not true. It's not true. And I, don't, I know we, we do experience some of this sort of stuff, obviously. <clears throat> and, um, you know, and, and actually, as we get older, our brains, parts of our brains get smaller. You know, the shrinking brain is a reality. Um, it was interesting as well because they've, they've been doing functional MRI studies, um, magnetic resonance imaging on brains of people. And you might remember some, you know, hopefully people remember, I, I talked about doing some experiments, some sort of tests that were done on dogs using this, this um, technique in order to find what dogs might be thinking. Well, they're also, they're using this to look at the sort of structure of, of obviously human brains and using another technique as well called positron emission tomography, which, of course, the abbreviation for that is PET. So I'm wondering when we're going to do PET scans on our dogs. But that's an aside. Um, what did they find? Look, you know, one of the key things, we, we, we do talk about Alzheimer's a lot, and again, that's, that's something that's seen as, you know, this last thing that happens, is almost an epidemic that happens later in life. And what they have shown is that those, those sort of uh, protein plaques, these things called amyloids, which form in the brain and are associated with the, the loss of function of Alzheimer's, they, they find them actually throughout people's lives actually that yes you know they do increase in sort of number and size as we get older but they're actually present um in young people i don't know how this is supposed to be good news prove that the the process of our brains decaying doesn't begin when we're old it starts i'm still trying to recover from the shock of knowing that 20 was the peak (laughs) well yeah well there are Yes, seemingly, but nevertheless, one of the wonderful things about brains is other bits take over as other parts don't work so well. So there is adaptation. So we know that even when parts of the brain might get smaller, (laughs) yes, bits get smaller, but some other bits take over. Yeah, we actually get higher levels of processing in the frontal lobes, for example, even though as we get older, they get smaller. So other parts, there's this reserve capacity in our brains, and... And so other bits actually learn to do the stuff that, you know, one part of the brain might have been doing and isn't doing as well as it used to. 
So talk and to us. Actually, yeah. So talk to yeah. us about how we galvanise this reserve capacity. We need to right. get some, we need to get something here about how we make ourselves as healthy as possible. Since we're no longer twenty anymore. <laughs> right. Okay. Well, look. There's always there. There are the you know there's the the standard things for a start. I mean, there is about just general health is really important here. So you know the the, the usual suspects. Stop smoking if you smoke, you know. Um, exercise. Now, exercise, just physical exercise, even sort of, you know, a regular walk with the dog or whatever, has been shown to be really effective as well, actually, in preserving and improving um, the sort of uh, mental functioning. I think that and, I think that deserves repeating because it, uh, it, it sounds such exercise. a sort of it, it sounds like sort of almost a bland piece of advice. We say it's about everything that exercise is good for it, but what you're exercise saying is, is absolutely so well. You're, and what you're saying is absolutely right. This is strongly evidence based that if we want to preserve yep. our cerebral functioning, absolutely right. Stop smoking because that's a huge risk for damaging your brain. But mm. exercise has been proven to help preserve yes. brain function. I can't say that too strongly. We no, need to absolutely. pump some blood into the brain. Yeah. Yeah. We do. And we need to support it with a good diet. And, of course, you know, the classic, the Mediterranean diet still sort of, you know, appears there. But no one quite knows what part of the Mediterranean diet is the good bit. So most people plump for the red wine. And that's probably not the bit to go for. Maybe it's the olive oil. I'm not sure. But the other thing is really trying to, is, is learning new skills. So um, a study was done where they developed a program for people over 60 years of age, and they, they were divided into two groups. And also, actually, this was a, a bit of a controlled study, so one of my kind of favorites. But um, one group could study photography, which is something they hadn't done before, or the other group could do quilting. So it, these were sort of... Um, new skills that these people were developing, they took classes actually up to 16 hours a week over three months. Um, 16 so, hours yes, a week they, of quilting? Yes. You know, well, it's, it's quite quilt. complicated. King-size bed. And it's very creative. Absolutely. I think if you're starting from scratch, you need to learn quite a lot. But the point being that after, after three months, and, and they were compared with a group. So got, they got that control group, and the controlled group basically just got together and, and had social groups, you know, sit around talking, whatever, having cups of tea, maybe red wines, I don't know. Um, but there was, at the end of three months, there was a significant difference in the group that had been doing these new, um, you know, taking these classes and learning new skills. The difference was what? In, in, in episodic memory and overall kind of neural functioning. So their brains were working better after three months. And that, that persisted. That improvement persisted for 12 months. Now, that's a very interesting study, Prue, because um, yeah. well, my understanding of the research of most of the brain training apps and stuff like that is uh, all yeah. they show is that you get better at doing the app, but it doesn't make any difference elsewhere. That's right. But Absolutely. You're that and I agree of, with that. But this yes. type of new activity, which engaged all sorts of aspects of the brain, did have benefits across the board for brain function, from yeah, what you say. you're so right. It's about doing something that's really interesting and different. I mean, there was another study where they taught people juggling. So, mm. I mean, I think there's a number of different sorts of things you can do. But, yeah, perhaps those sorts of brain exercise apps that you can get on your phone really only teach you to do something. And, it's, it's, and actually, people probably stop using them because they're boring. Yes. So find something new, a new hobby, a new sport. Join the circus. But, you know, find something that will actually really sort of stimulate you both to continue doing it 
and um, and yeah, and to actually slow this, or in fact improve and the, the other, functioning of your brain, slow the decline. And the other proven way is social connectedness. Do you just want to talk briefly about that before we finish? Well, yeah. Look again. I mean, it's we are we live in a world as we do now, and often online as well. Um, getting more and more disconnected and, and having those kinds of social interactions. I think both the anticipation of regular social interactions. So, joining social clubs. I mean, being in a sports club or a hobby club. Again, you know, we are actually. Uh, accumulating not just the perhaps the new skills aspects of it and the exercise aspects of it but yeah the the actual just being with other people having conversations discussing new ideas um and and the feeling of actually belonging is is very potent uh for our mental health across the board as well as our sort of neurological functioning well thank you Prue that's wonderful to hear hopefully we'll be socially connected with you face to face in the studio next time I hope so too it's not the same is it thanks Prudence thanks Prudence that was very enlightening that was Prudence dear uh, helping us understand why we should all give up smoking exercise more remain connected take up new hobbies and eat a healthy diet and that will keep our brains functioning better uh, considering that she's now told us that they will start sliding into senescence from the age of 20, which was a slightly disturbing discovery. It's much more interesting than just doing Scrabble and crosswords, which is what I thought we had to do. Now, um, it's nearly time to wrap up, but maybe a few days until April, but I just want to get in early and remind listeners that our April amnesty will be soon on. And this is your chance to show your love and support for the station and maybe uh, cop one of our amazing bag of prizes. (laughs) There's so many prizes on offer for April. We've got vouchers, records, concert tickets. There's a bicycle, there's a digital tablet, so many more. My, my favourite prize would be the year's supply of olive oil from Mount Zero Olives. Oh, my goodness, that would keep my brain functioning well. I reckon a year's supply for me would be about 25 litres. We get through so much olive oil. Uh, Anyway, not surprisingly, last year, 2021, with so many of our sponsors being from the arts community, the income to triple R didn't exactly flourish last year. So it would be fantastic if people can support us during the April Amnesty by resubscribing, donating. Uh, Jump onto the website, rrr.org.au. Remember, any donations over $2 are tax deductible. And if you um, resubscribe, you make one of those luscious prizes. So it just remains for me to say thank you to our expert panellists, Rainbow Doc and Prudence, dear. Uh, of course, thanks to Panel B for keeping this whole thing on the um, going and twiddling all those knobs and buttons. I've been Dr Nick. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can check us out on Facebook. Listen anytime to Triple R Radio On Demand. You can always download the podcast. Hi, this is Panel Beta. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Therapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.